I guess maybe because the cat didn't go in the water, so maybe he's like, well, she wouldn't have jumped into the lake without her precious kitty cat, so surely something horrible has gone wrong here. I would have said this is the greatest movie ever if he just walked up with the daughter and went to the Burgermeister and went, the cat killed my daughter! Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Richardi, and I am joined today by book talker, One Piece fan, friend of the pod, Daniel Green. Daniel, welcome to the show. I immediately reject book talker. I'm a booktuber. <laughs> I'm on oh, YouTube, no. not TikTok. <laughs> Can you tell how I've been wasting all of my time this week? <laughs> <laughs> it's totally okay. I've been doing the same thing. The amount of TikToks I've watched in the last 48 hours is disturbing. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it always gets you when you least expect it. But uh, Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today. And I have uh, the same question for you that I have for every guest on this podcast. It's the only question that I really like to ask them. Um, why did we watch Frankenstein? So I have actually been rereading both versions of the book. For those of you who don't know, there's two versions published by the original author. Uh, one in, I want to say, 1819 and the other in 1831. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on those dates. <laughs> And then I was like, well, I was naturally curious about the most famous adaptation. And God, this adaptation has been influential from the Simpsons parodying it to pretty much how everyone thinks about Frankenstein's image. I mean, there is no other version of Frankenstein. Even when other people do Frankenstein, they just take this movie's interpretation. So I just, hey, let's talk about one of the most important sci-fi stories ever. Yeah, it's it's a I mean, it's one of the most classic monster movies. It was a horror film before horror film was even really a, a genre that people talked about. And it's really interesting. I I read Frankenstein. I'm not quite sure which version a while back in college. And uh, I hadn't actually seen this movie since reading it. And I had forgotten just how much this movie is the trendsetter for the popular idea of Frankenstein, even more so than the original novel that created the the story and the character. Yeah. Uh, So there's a lot, a lot to unpack here. And we... (laughs) It's the, maybe the shortest movie we've gotten to watch from Movie Struck in a while. We've been doing a lot of two-hour ones, and this is a, a tight hour ten. <laughs> so I know I appreciated that. Was it even that long? Wow. I didn't know. I, to me, it felt like 45 minutes, and I was like, all right, wow, easy peasy. Yeah, it's it's an hour ten like with credits, which it, this, is, uh, this movie came out in 1931, uh, and this is when credits were still sort of done overture style, so you'd have a list of names sort of popping up before the actual story of the movie started with the overture for the film playing um, very, very much influenced by stagecraft more so than filmmaking really having its own style. Nowadays, you know, credits are typically at the end, save a couple names mm-hmm. that might get tossed in at the beginning. Um, and I think that definitely pads the runtime a little bit because it does. It really flies by. <laughs> so, so you said you have not seen this movie, but you definitely would recognize the monster everywhere, though, right? Like this is just. Oh, yeah. Universally known as Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. It's. Uh, You know, it's the classic image that we all sort of picture in our mind or see in spirit Halloween aisles. It's the the flat head, the bolts in the the side of the neck, uh, much larger top heavy build and sort of the shuffling movement that all sort of builds this this picture of Frankenstein's monster uh, in, in pop culture. I'm really curious about how they just came up with that look because it is drastically different than the book. It is. And it was it's a product of the production designer of the film when they were kind of putting this together. I don't know the exact backstory of how before how they landed on this particular look, but they 
specifically did deviate from what uh, Mary Shelley described in her novel Frankenstein. There, the creature's mm. almost beautiful in a way, <laughs> in an unnatural way, but that's more in line with how she wrote him. Yeah. So you typically go through a plot summary around this time? Is, is that the uh, correct format here? <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah. We're going to just jump right into it. Uh, before the actual story begins, the movie opens on a handy-dandy announcer stepping out to give the audience a friendly warning about the picture we're about to view. He informs us that Frankenstein is a strange tale about the mysteries of creation, that it it will thrill us and maybe even horrify us. So, you know, if, we, if you want to get off the, the train, this is the only stop, guys, because otherwise we're, we're buckling in for the thrilling tale of Frankenstein. We jump into our credits and jump back out of it into the scene of a funeral where a priest is performing some last rites as a, we pan across a, a weeping family burying a, a loved one. Nearby, off in the bushes, uh, Dr. Frankenstein and his <laughs> assistant are watching. Uh, his assistant, Fritz, um, tries to kind of poke out and look and he gets down, down, you fool, lest they be spotted. It's <laughs> the This film does geography of a space in a really interesting way and in that everything is very condensed and here that i think creates a little bit of unintentional comedy and just how close dr frankenstein and fritz are to actually being in the funeral itself there it looks like they're maybe <laughs> three feet away behind a fence <laughs> it felt very to me like um like stage play suspension of disbelief where like two mm-hmm. people will be working on a stage they're limited space so they have to make them closer than they are in the reality of the world they're creating it felt like that in this movie it felt very stage play and the i'd say lower quality matte painting in the background did not help fight against (laughs) that feeling (laughs) no you get this sense that they knew that this set was only going to be used for like maybe a five minute scene they're like "Mm, we don't need to put as much of our production design budget here as we do in our our towers and windmills later on we can uh we can get the the day painters in for a bit of a lower rate. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess this is kind of like the first big point mm-hmm. I want to talk about. It's actually like there's obviously some really ugly set design in this movie that is not <laughs> hold up to 4K remasters. But there's also some really fantastic set design that I think still yes. looks great to this day. Like the gothic shots of the castle and the tower and then the inner like cuts on this lab and all these contraptions in the background. Whoever was in charge of the set design nailed a vibe. They didn't always do the best job of it, but they really (laughs) nailed it. Yeah, consistency is not the word I would use, but like you mentioned, the laboratory in particular has become such an iconic look that it it really defined the mad scientist laboratory in its appearance. And just being able to be that definitive of a work of set design is a accommodation of itself but like you said it also just visually looks great even in the remastered versions nowadays because you know obviously they weren't shooting on green screen this was 1931 everything had to be constructed (laughs) so sometimes that means you get questionably painted stormy nights and sometimes that means you get really (laughs) gorgeous uh (laughs) uh, macabre castles (laughs) Well, I, I think it just kind of is a, a product of the era. It's like those are the shots that will, of course, look the best for, you know, what they're building. But I also like, I think it's interesting how, 
I don't know, to me, even though it's such an old movie, the fact that it was all really real definitely made those scenes where everything kind of came together better really hold up overall. Like, there were some, obviously the acting's more old school and stuff like that, but if I saw, like, that same set in a movie now but done with CG, I don't think I'd love it as much. There's something about it just being so kind of gritty looking that I just, I was Mm -hmm. obsessed with. Yeah, I mean, we did um, the movie Van Helsing on the podcast a couple months back, and it directly references this movie and that part of the climax of the fight is them uh, going to their version of Frankenstein's lab. And like you mentioned, the it's the same exact layout. It's the the tower full of various electrical knickknacks and things, but it just doesn't have that same kind of crunchiness to it that really makes this particular set work. It loses a lot of it, its, its heart. And um, what makes it so spooky is that it is a little bit difficult to discern exactly what you're looking at sometimes. I think that really adds to the overall sort of horrific effect. <laughs> Crunchiness is the best way to put that. That was an amazing choice of word. Um, sorry, my cat's <laughs> nuzzling the mic. I'm sorry if you can hear that. Oh, no. Um, it's, it's and I, 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 you said it kind of... You said it kind of set the look for a mad scientist. Is that like known in Hall? I didn't know that. It was like the first movie to have this type of depiction. I don't know if it's necessarily the only movie to have ever tried to do a mad scientist, but it's one of the most iconic from this era. Um, whenever you want to do something horrific, there's a couple films that you tend to reference. The, the classic monster movies, if you will. There's Frankenstein, either Dracula or Nosferatu, and sometimes The Cabinet of uh, Dr. Caligari, which is the other one that I'd say probably influences more of the mad scientist look. Although that film has a bit more of a surrealist vibe to it than this one necessarily does, where it's more about the the crackling electricity, the mixture of round globes on uh, unidentified machinery and the laboratory table and the uh, remote location sort of appearance. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, every, every mad, much like wizards, all mad scientists really just need like an isolated tower somewhere. <laughs> what, what are wizards if not the mad scientists of the fantasy universes? Uh, we'll get into that more in a minute, though, because the consistency of the character of the actual Mr. Dr. Frankenstein, uh, <laughs> I, I have I have issue. We'll get into that later. <laughs> of course. So back in our in our cemetery, the undertaker begins to bury the recently desist. And as his work concludes and he lights his pipe and takes off for the day. Dr. Frankenstein and his assistant make for the freshly buried grave and immediately begin undoing this man's hard work. Excavating the coffin, the two cart it along through, <laughs> <laughs> cart it along through the mountains where they uh, run across another body uh, hung from, a, I believe it's supposed to be the gallows. It's in a very remote location for a gallows, but I'm not really sure what other, what else this pole in the mountains could be. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just just accept it for being weird and creepy. That's my mentality with it. Yeah, yeah. They just sometimes they just needed to put things in the mountains because they already had the mountain set ready to go for later in the movie. So they're like, eh, just walk past the same rock. And I'm pretty sure it is the same rock because they do the same <laughs> shot later on. And the only thing that's missing is the, the pole with the man on it. <laughs> Frankenstein sends Fritz to go cut the hanging body down, but upon examining it, he's declares that the brain inside is useless as the neck was broken and that they need to find another brain. They, they need that brain. Later on, at a medical institute, a surgical class is just wrapping up. The professor is comparing two brain specimens. Ugh, and I love this scene. He's comparing two brains. One is the most perfect specimen the doctor has ever seen. The And the other belongs to, as the label on the jar says, a dysfunctional criminal. 
He explains that the criminal brain is less bumpy than the normal brain. Therefore, um, the man whose brain it was led a life of violence and murder. And I'm not a neurologist, but I'm I'm pretty sure that that's not how brain science works. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think being smooth brained <laughs> makes you prone to violence. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie is so they're like no 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 this yeah, is the um, truth <laughs> I, I i just uh you know that was science back in the day you cut open someone's head it says bad or good on this brain that's how you know <laughs> yeah they're like do i what, what do i write on the label for this brain jar do i write normal brain or do i write abnormal brain because those are the two labels on the jars i actually have i think more experience with young frankenstein which was a parody of this movie made a much later on and they they do this well in this scene where the assist because what will happen is as the class lets out and the brains are left on the table the <laughs> assistant fritz will break in and go to steal the brains but he'll be spooked by a loud sound and drop the normal brain and thus take the abnormal brain with him as he flees uh and in young frankenstein of course they famously parody that by saying oh well i grabbed you a brain from abby normal you got my, you put an abnormal brain in my monster. <laughs> and I know that that wasn't going to happen in this movie, but I still wanted someone to say it. Um, <laughs> also, I have to give a shout out to the way that the actor who played Fritz got into the classroom because he climbs in through the window and then works his way past a bunch of desks in the exact way that every freshman in a 100 level lecture has tried to climb over chairs to get to the front of the room first. <laughs> I just got to shout him out for that. <laughs> That that starts that falls into I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional comedy, which this has mm -hmm. quite a bit of. There were several scenes I laughed out loud, and I'm not sure if it's something hasn't aged well or no, that was meant to be funny when it happened. Because <laughs> I saw him walking in, and I was just like, "That's that's funny. That's so funny. That's funny. It's yeah. it's really hard to say. This is the 1930s were a really rough time to be watching movies and trying to figure out what was funny and what's not." Nowadays, um, I recently tried to watch all of the Best Picture winners in order, and the 1929 to 1935 range is really hard to not laugh at nowadays. <laughs> so I'm not too surprised that we are encountering a similar issue in this movie, especially one that is um, as fantastical and dramatic at times as Frankenstein tends to be. <laughs> yeah, this is dramatic. Oh, yes. I was oh, no, sorry. Please. I was gonna say like this is borderline soap opera esque. It's it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's charming in a way because it is exactly what you expect from a classic monster movie in that it is over the top and completely fantastical because the fantastical elements were almost as terrifying to an audience as the horror elements were at this time. Like uh, as I mentioned. Horror as a genre wasn't really coined in cinema until the 1934. And that's not to say that scary movies weren't made before then, but it does mean that the focus of a movie like this, which is warns the audience ahead of time that what they see may thrill and horrify them, was not necessarily to be scary in the way that we expect modern horror movies to be, but to be thrilling and so unusual and divorced from reality that it scares the audience through how abnormal it is. And sometimes that means that when you watch it now, when we're conditioned to expect things like, I don't know, the human centipede, uh, the conjuring, <laughs> completely different, <laughs> completely different things, completely different audience reactions, stuff kind of becomes funny in hindsight. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, this is the era as well when, like, George Orwell fooled the entire world to thinking an alien invasion was happening on a radio drama. Like, yes. people, 
there's going to be easy scares that now are like, that's supposed to be scary. <laughs> Especially, I think, a, a place that it, it really shows is in the monster design. Because while he's certainly supposed to be monstrous in appearance, he kind of just looks like a really big dude to a modern viewer. <laughs> I've certainly seen much oh, yeah. wilder monsters now in my life. But I, in the 1930s, in terms of what monsters had been on screen, you've got really pale guy. Guy who has a lot of costume <laughs> devices that look kind of like a bat, you know. <laughs> um, not too too much to compare it to. <laughs> I, I would say that Nosferatu was a truly terrifying movie monster, but that's about it. So we leave uh, Doctor Frankenstein, and I need to. I realize we keep stopping and starting, but I gotta talk about a choice they made in this movie that really pissed me off. So in the novel Frankenstein, what is Frankenstein's first name? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, His name is in the novel. It's Victor Frankenstein, right? Yes. Yes. His name is Victor Frankenstein. And now for this movie, I read I was doing a little bit of trivia reading up on it afterwards because I needed to see if there was a reason behind this. They chose not to name Dr. Frankenstein Victor Frankenstein and instead rename him to Henry Frankenstein because they were worried that Victor would be a little bit too sharp and... Uh, off-putting for their audience. They wanted people to be able to see him as the hero of the movie, and so they changed his name. But, but, (laughs) instead of just not using the name Victor at all, they instead have another character named Victor in the movie. (laughs) Victor Moritz, who is around as much as Frankenstein, give or take a few scenes, and looks a lot like him. (laughs) The two actors who play Henry and Victor, uh, Colin Clive and John Bowles both look very similar. <laughs> and and so they're when both we go into interested in the scene, same woman. <laughs> yes. So we go into this next scene where at a very, a very luxe abode of this young woman, Elizabeth, uh, <laughs> a man named Victor arrives and asks if she's had any word from Henry. And through context clues, I was able to put together that Henry was Dr. Frankenstein because they talk about him off doing his experiments and things. But I was so convinced. I'm like, wait, did Dr. Frankenstein do his body theft thing and then come back to visit Elizabeth? And now if they're trying to find a third person, what's going on? Why are you throwing another Victor at me? Why not just name him something different too? (laughs) If you didn't want to use Victor. It feels like one of those decisions... Yeah, it feels like one of those decisions you'd see, like, the old cigar-smoking producer say, like, we still need a Victor, see? We need a Victor in here. They're expecting it. Can't be the main boy, though. He needs a strong, good name, like Henry. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Oh, man. It, I had to pause the movie when I was watching it, uh, taking notes, to look up what his name was supposed to be to make sure that I wasn't misunderstanding it, because the last thing I wanted was to be going through the summary, calling the wrong person Frankenstein the entire time. But no, no, they just have another Victor in this scene. Um, and and Victor and Elizabeth, they're they're chatting about Frankenstein. She she reads a letter that she received explaining that he's living alone with his experiments and his assistant in the remote mountains. And she's like, I'm so worried. Have you seen him? Uh, and Victor's like, yeah, I ran into him once, uh, but he refused to let me come see his lab. He was super squirrely. So he offers to go and see Henry's old medical school professor to see if he knows anything about what's up with their their mutual friend. Uh, it looks like Victor is off alone until Elizabeth decides to take a little moment's pause before leaving alongside him. So our, our crew of <laughs> deuteragonists has assembled and they're off to figure out what is up with their old friend. 
At the professor's office, Elizabeth and Victor are talking with the professor, who explains that Frankenstein's work was getting a little too advanced and dangerous for the university. He was trying to create life and requested the university get him better bodies from more questionable sources. At first, Victor's like, oh, well, you just mean animal bodies, right? That's no problem. And the professor is like, mm, guess again, buddy. <laughs> so I, I want to comment on something kind of weird. Mm -hmm. I, I was watching the, uh, after rewatching the movie, I was watching The Kill Count by Dead Meat, which is a fantastic YouTube channel. They do great stuff on horror movies. Mm. And the host of that show pointed out just how many skulls are in the background of this dude's <laughs> office. And it's such an excessive amount of skulls. What, like, no need for the amount that he has. I think it's 12, I counted. Oh, wow. It's like a family massacre is as his office decor. He did have two brains. True. One of which was distinctly less bumpy than the other. Just, like, out in his classroom on a table. So I guess he's got a very particular interior design scheme. And he's sticking to it. I was really expecting him to turn out to be the villain because I was like, talk about heavy handed. Jesus Christ. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he he does in many ways act like a villain. He's not a character from the original story of Frankenstein. He's a creation of the movie, at least in this iteration. Um so he, he was a bit of a wild card player because you're like, well, I don't actually know what you're what, if you're going to because he joins the crew. He like decides to go with them to go see Victor, to go see Henry. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, he sort of becomes an important character in a way. <laughs> I don't blame you. I do not. Blame yeah, it's you. um, this is not this this yeah. naming convention. This is going to get me a few times in this podcast. So I'm just going to put out the blanket apology now for <laughs> Mispronunciations are not um, unfamiliar to our listeners, but this one is there's just a little Freudian slip there. So Elizabeth is is talking to to our, our boys and she's like, I, I need to go see Henry. Uh, and they invite the professor along, who seems reluctant since he, it's not really his problem anymore, but he decides to tag along. <laughs> we go to one of those great shots of the dark and stormy tower where Frankenstein's laboratory is as the storm gathers overhead. Frankenstein is rushing around preparing for his experiments in the very classic laboratory setup that we all know and love. Uh, you know, it the sparking devices that sort of look like the back wall of a Spencer's, all sorts of wires and cables, the, the stone walls really blocking it all in. It's just chef's kiss. Love to see it. It's, it's an epic evil wizard's tower made for science. Yes, yes. <laughs> Exactly. DMs of the world take note. If you want inspiration for your, your big bad evil wizards lair, this is a great place to go. Uh, <laughs> uh, as as you know, we enter into the again the world's coolest laboratory, the blueprint for all mad scientists since um, Fritz and Frankenstein are running around. Fritz is afraid of the thunderstorm raging outside, but Frankenstein, he's only excited. What sort of electrical secrets of heaven will he unveil? <laughs> It's it's kind of like it's one of the best in my opinion like achievements of so like the, for me like even in cheap bad movies you can just tell when something's high effort mm -hmm. and to me this like lab I just feel like they knew it was going to be iconic they deliver one of the most iconic lines of the history of cinema it's alive <laughs> um, it's just I don't know I love how vibrantly alive like this whole scene is it's so edited well the sound design's fantastic the climax of it. It's just one of the most perfectly put together scenes I think I've seen from this era of movies. 
Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, it's it's iconic for a reason. It's the, one of the pinnacles of monster cinema for a reason. And there, there's, uh, frankly, a reason that it's been either recreated or parodied so many times in more modern uh, horror ad- adaptations. And even, you know, like you mentioned The Simpsons before, this is so iconic that it's then woven itself into pretty much all of the pop culture that we consume nowadays as well. Uh, if you're If they're going to reference Frankenstein, they're going to reference... This scene in particular, they're going to reference this set. They're going to reference these sounds. Uh, it really is the defining scene of the movie, even though it's only about 20 minutes into it or so. <laughs> it's, uh, it's The climax of the movie is not nearly as iconic as the creation of the monster is. It, it's a combination of just the incredible set design, the great acting, uh, an iconic line, all kind of coming together to make something incredibly memorable. Surrounded by scenes in this movie that have about the same level of production value, but just don't work together in the same way that everything kind of does in this scene. Yeah, and I think it's also where the acting comes across the strongest for mm-hmm. me, because Frankenstein, the actual doctor, just kind of, he hits this mania that you, like, feel. Like, it, he's so excited, he's so passionate. The delivery of, it's alive, <laughs> is, like, the most ridiculous delivery, but he earns it, and it's just so much fun. Yeah, uh, Colin Clive really giving it his all in this moment. And he sort of, the character and the acting sort of neutralize after the scene. Up and until now, Frankenstein has been fully a mad scientist. Everything we see from him gives the implication that he is entirely invested in his work. And we'll see over the next kind of couple minutes of screen time as he's preparing to bring his experiment to life, his, his friends start showing up at the castle and he's castle, tower, whatever the structure is. Uh, And he's fully, fully buying into his experiment. He does not care that they're there. He only cares about his scientific discovery, his success bringing his creature to life. But shortly after this, he's going to have a bit of a character shift and what his priorities are are going to change quite dramatically. Um, But having him fully reveling in being a mad scientist and the it's alive, it's alive is... So wonderful. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a more descriptive word than wonderful, but really it's just hearing those that line delivery, uh, it really sells you on, oh yeah, I'm watching Frankenstein right now and I am invested in Frankenstein doing Frankenstein stuff, which I guess is bringing a monster back to life. That's what Frankenstein does, right? <laughs> I think the, the best way to put it and the way that it, it just kind of rings true to me is it really feels just like pure cinema. Like the magic mm-hmm. of cinema is just really working in that moment because everyone just... Every element of that scene is just so perfect. I don't know. Anyway, it makes me geek out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you completely. It's it's the best scene in the movie, hands down. If you're going to watch one scene from the movie, watch the laboratory scene. <laughs> so it's time for Frankenstein's final test. He tells Fritz to throw all the switches. We get all of those Spencer's lighting back wall effects going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the storm is reaching its peak. It's almost time to begin. But uh, as Frankenstein settles in to wait, there's a knocking at the door. He tells he so first he sends Fritz to go tell whoever it is to go away. No one can come in and interrupt him. Uh, Fritz talks himself up as he goes down to open the door. He's like, I'm "Gonna send him away, Fritz. You're gonna do this. You got this. You can. You know, you tell him to go away." And he opens a little little window in the door, a little peephole, and he tells the gang to get lost. Outside is, of course, Elizabeth, Victor, and the professor. Uh, but they just keep knocking and yelling up to Frankenstein, who leans out a window and yells back at them. Uh, <laughs> which is one of the kind of points I wanted to make about the geography of this movie. 
Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Everything is (laughs) super condensed. Every location is within feet of each other. This lab is at the top floor of some sort of castle tower structure. They're at the front entrance, I guess. He's a story or so up. It takes absolutely no effort for them to yell at each other. And then it takes almost no time for him to get up and down the stairs from the laboratory to the door. And later we'll see to the dungeon cellar area that's also in this tower. These are the only three locations in this tower. (laughs) Uh, But in a similar form, a lot of other places in the movie are also very close together. Like the village and this tower and a windmill are all sort of within, it feels like a hundred feet of each other, but I suppose the movie wants us to believe it's more distance than that. Well, it, it just, it makes the whole thing feel like a stage play. It just reeked of that yeah. for me the whole time. An exceptionally well done one, but it the whole thing is built <laughs> and structured movement wise like a play. Mm-hmm. Up into a certain point. Once we get to a large, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll make our progress. Frankenstein tries to get the gang to go away when he comes to the door, but Elizabeth is like, can you please let us in for shelter? It's like a crazy thunderstorm out there. So he lets them in after having told Fritz to absolutely, under no circumstances, let anyone inside. <laughs> Frankenstein and Elizabeth go into um, what I like to call uh, 1930s romantic two-shot, which is where uh, the main romantic interest in a movie will go into that shot where both of them are on a slight angle but we're looking at them from the side and then they proceed Mm -hmm. to fuzz the edges of the frame a little bit and it goes into like hazy romance vision even though what they're Mm -hmm. talking about is elizabeth trying to convince frankenstein to not do whatever it is that he's doing and to just come home with them as she's doing this (laughs) victor just cuts into the scene like their full (laughs) mid-romantic moment and victor's like you're crazy man (laughs) and just busts in And I love that for him, which prompts Frankenstein to say, crazy, am I? We'll see whether I'm crazy or not. Uh, And bring everyone upstairs to show them that he means business by having them watch what's up in the lab. The gang enters. Frankenstein locks the door and asks them all to have a seat. He begins to go into his monologue about the power of science, uh, but he's interrupted by the professor starting to poke around at the body on the table. Frankenstein is sort of like trying to explain to him what he's up to. He's... We're getting into our second um, fun scientific explanation of the movie. (laughs) So Frankenstein is trying to explain how he's going to bring this creature to life. And he talks about how at university they learned about ultraviolet rays. Yep. Which was the most ray of all the rays to have ever rayed. To me, this (laughs) this reminded me of like in modern movies when they're like nanobots or when they're like reverse the polarity. It's just vague science things that at the time no one like on the mass understood. So you could just explain away. And so it reminded me of uh, Night of the Living Dead when they're like satellite beams created zombies. (laughs) Yeah, nanobots are really the new ultraviolet ray. Uh, But Frankenstein sort of explains that he's gone beyond the ultraviolet ray. He's discovered the ray that first brought life into the world was, I think, his exact words. (laughs) So I guess we're all we're all here because of rays, baby. That's that's the origin of life. I mean, kind of. Evolution? Nah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I guess. I mean, technically, if you think about it simply enough, I suppose it's kind of right. (laughs) I mean, I'm no scientist, but... <laughs> well, we're, we're clearly not as qualified. He has a tower. Well, actually, he's not a doctor. Yes. It says he doesn't actually get his degree. No. He's, he's not even really a doctor. 
That's true. That's also canon to the book because in the in the novel Frankenstein, mm-hmm. he he also fails to complete his degree for very similar reasons. I just want to say for all the billionaires trying to figure out how to be immortal, this college dropout got you beat. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the billionaire um, college dropout tech bro trope is not limited to Facebook's founder, but it's actually <laughs> Victor Frankenstein did it first. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> He's the original, the original, you know, the OG. He walked so that they could run. Um, <laughs> Henry goes on to explain that tonight he will raise the body that he's created out of other bodies. He's like, this is no dead man. This is an entirely new body of my own creation made out of all these other dead bodies that I've sewn together. So don't, you know, we're, we don't need to get into semantics about whether or not multiple dead bodies counts as one previously dead person or not. Like, that's, that's too nitty-gritty. Like, I just want to put out, <laughs> it's the most serial killer act that no one thinks of as a serial yes. killer act. Because, like, we know yes. he didn't kill these people, but he doesn't, I don't think he clarifies that in the scene. So everyone there, like, no one's like, hey, where'd you, uh, where'd you get that? <laughs> Yeah, they know that he previously at university was requesting bodies from questionable sources. Right, so to me, I'd be like, did you take them from living people? Has there been a rash of grave robberies recently? (laughs) Because if yes, I think you've just solved the case. I did want to mention, like, when they're actually robbing the grave, I love how they, like, look like giddy kids. Like, they're so, like, let's get in here with our little (laughs) shovels, and it's so messed up what they're doing. Yeah, that scene makes liberal use of crossfades to show that time is progressing. <laughs> Can't just, we don't see them dig for hours, thank God. That would have really padded the runtime there. Well, what I love about it is uh, you can tell it's just like the art of filmmaking hasn't matured. It's like a very immature choice. But like they hadn't established how you do that smoothly yet in cinema. Mm-hmm. So they just do this kind of fade, 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 fade. And it, it communicates what it wants to, but so roughly. Yeah, you really get the sense that, like, this is a a new art form. And, I mean, you get that sense from it being black and white and also having been released in 1931, but there's a certain roughness to the way that this film is edited that is really emblematic of the period in which it was produced. Especially because so many scenes, you can just be like, people do, like, enter, stage right. Like, it just feels like they're doing, like, this very (laughs) old-timey, like, entrances and exasperated stage acting. (laughs) Yes, and sometimes it works out for them, and a lot of the times it's just like, "Oh, this is a theater trick. You're you're doing yeah. theater to me right now," which is fine. <laughs> or I like... it results in continuity errors. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's continuity errors. I didn't notice any. Just like a handful of like someone will be holding a cup oh, and yeah. they won't be, or something small like that, where you can tell like, "Oh, this was a different take." No, like Starbucks cups in the background <laughs> of Game of Thrones type of continuity errors. Just little like jump cuts and things mm-hmm. here and there. Um, they happen in pretty much every film. I don't. I'm try- hard pressed to think of a movie that does not have a single, even slight continuity error. Um, there's something in editing called uh, cutting on action, which is or match cutting, which is where if someone is, for say, example, standing up out of a chair and you want to cut it from a shot to a different shot in the middle of them standing up, you try and match the action of them standing up perfectly so that it looks fluid even as you change camera angles and they don't really do that no. here that sort of technique was not um as standard in the 1930s as it is nowadays yeah, for sure uh so as our our thunder collapse the experiment begins fritz and the doc uh un- or i shouldn't say doc he's not a doctor <laughs> fritz and frankenstein <laughs> 
uncover their body and they start raising it. It's the it's the iconic creation of the monster scene that everyone is at least sort of familiar with through pop culture osmosis. The the body of the monster raises up through the tower into the top of the storm. Electric equipment is crackling all around. There's the sound of sparks and thunder. Uh, and as all of that kind of cacophony of sounds dies down, the the body is lowered back to the the ground of the laboratory. As we we watch the hand that is peeking out of the fabric covering the monster start moving ever so slightly, Frankenstein declares in one of the most iconic lines in all of uh, moviedom, it's alive, it's alive. And like you mentioned, it's, this is some of the best acting in the movie. It really lands. And did you, uh, upon your research, stumble across the censorship that happened with this scene? Yes. So he... Takes Frankenstein also says that he he says that he knows what it feels like to be God, uh, and that was censored in a, a later release of the movie uh, for being indecent or a blasphemous. Which it happened in the southern states, and I just think it's so funny <laughs> that Mary Shelley got backlash for her book for being too, uh, you know, uh, I think blasphemous, mm-hmm. and they they stayed true to the legacy for this movie, and I just I like that. Good on you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice continuity. It's it's nice to know that the Frankenstein story was as controversial in its movie adaptation as it was in its original uh, novel. Kind of uh, abruptly cutting from that scene, we go to back to the fancy estate of Elizabeth, where she, Victor, and an old man in a very funny hat, who we kind of learn in the scene is Frankenstein's dad. He'll be referred to as the Baron throughout the movie, uh, is asking them, like, what's up with my son? What's he doing? Why is he not here? He's very, very angry and harumphing quite a bit. I'm trying to think about a word to describe the emotion that this old man is doing. <laughs> I would say it's the worst acting of the movie. Oh, I yeah. actually really hated this guy's performance. <laughs> yeah. He just feels horribly out of place. He feels like a comedic character, but he isn't funny. And it's just yeah. totally mismatched with what everyone else is giving in every scene. <laughs> It's how Adam Sandler would try to portray that character, <laughs> yeah. but like not what Adam Sandler's trying, yeah, like when Adam Sandler's doing QB Halloween. <laughs> if we were to fan cast the modern remake of Frankenstein, this is the character that Adam Sandler's playing. <laughs> 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 they, uh, Elizabeth and Victor try to talk him talk him down a little bit. They're like, well, Henry's experiments are important. But uh, as they're in the midst of doing this, the Burgomaster drops by. He wants to know when the wedding is, but Henry's dad says, there's no wedding until my boy comes to his senses. We don't know exactly what the wedding is, but through context clues, again, kind of figure out that Elizabeth and Henry are supposed to get married. And because this is a small village in um, Germany somewhere. Vague, horrific, gothic place with frequent lightning storms. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, The whole village is very invested in this wedding. It'll be a big party since he's a, a, a wealthy man and therefore will throw it. A wealthy party. I also want to say we do know for sure Elizabeth's taste in men is the the crazy bad boys because she is down <laughs> still after all this weird yeah. shit. She's just like, I don't care. I want to get married. Do you see that castle? It's dope. <laughs> I could live in a tower with like lightning in it. <laughs> <laughs> he has a servant. That's awesome. His servant walks around the tower and doesn't open doors. It's the perfect servant. Don't forget about all these servants that are in this very nice, elaborate house in this ambiguously Germanic town that we're in. Nah, I want Fritz instead. <laughs> He's not off. I want him all. to drop things. <laughs> <laughs> He's afraid of thunderstorms and he doesn't like the monster. <laughs> 
Which, okay, oh, we'll, we'll talk about when we get there. Okay, continuing on. Yeah, uh, just kind of exit the scene. You know, the Baron decides that he's going to go get his son, who he's convinced has another woman, and that's why he isn't here to get married, which is a theory <laughs> he floats in front of his son's fiance, which is just a, a big faux pas. Don't. Not in 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> he just really likes to stir the pot, you know? He really likes to spill the tea. That's his. <laughs> We all know he's the Kim K of the family. <laughs> oh, I would argue that he's the Chris, you know? He's the one <laughs> pulling the string. Kim K is the only one that I know. I'm so sorry. I just wanted oh, to no. make a Jack Kardashian <laughs> reference. Chris is their mom. She's the, like, momager one. This is the only, this is the only gotcha. Kardashian information that I know, so I'm really glad that we've covered exactly the right amount between the both of us. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, Frankenstein's back at his tower where the professor is hanging out and they're chatting, having some coffee and chatting about his his creation, the creature. The professor is like, we gotta, we gotta kill this thing. It's, this guy's too dangerous. He's dangerous, man. But Frankenstein is too caught up in the thrill of scientific discovery to heed these warnings. Frankenstein is like, it's totally fine. I gave my monster a perfectly good brain. You should know it came from your lab. And the professor's like, oh, you know that the lab brain that was stolen from my lab was a criminal brain, right? So we're back to the, the smooth brain discourse. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. The brain bit gets me. It's really hard to talk about the brain bit with <laughs> I think it's been joked about so many times so effectively. Like, it's one of the also, like that and like the brain swapping from young Frankenstein and the Simpsons did it. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just a very, like, I guess, memeable part of it. Like, you could totally see the meme of like, I thought I had the good brain. And like, you show the jar, (laughs) it's the abnormal brain gone. Um, So I think it's just, it's just like, it's one of the things that's just become comedy. Yeah. In the same way that the uh, laboratory creation of the monster scene has become iconic and referenced, the, the brain bit is like, oh, this is the part of the movie that we can make fun of. And so whenever you see the lab, if you're watching a comedy, you're probably going to see a brain bit happen too. This is new information to Frankenstein, though, who seems to have not known the origin of his brain, even though it was labeled in the jar that it came in, abnormal brain. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Fritz had one job and no part of it said he needed to read. <laughs> Leave him alone. I mean, Fritz didn't have to read, but shouldn't Frankenstein have? <laughs> oh, that's right. It would have still been there. What not, the hell? He can, he's not going to take the brain out of the jar. He took the whole thing. So did Frankenstein just be like, he got a brain. I don't need to double check his work. No, no person in an oversight position has ever double checked the work of their assistants ever. That's the, that's the truth of academia that they're putting Wait, out Wait, yeah, here. I didn't think about that. Frankenstein's a fucking idiot. <laughs> That's why he didn't get his doctorate, man. He's too caught up. If you don't, if you you gotta check your sources, you gotta check your citations. And in this case, your source is brain jars um, labels. And if you don't check them, that's on you. All right. Yeah. Uh, As they sort of argue, the footsteps footing up the stairs let us know that the monster is about to enter the scene. Uh, He has only been raised in the darkness, so they they dim all the lights uh, and entering the room backwards and then turning around for dramatic effect is Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein invites him in and the monster sort of shuffles shuffles towards his chair, obeying Frankenstein's commands sort of slowly, uh, much like a child would be unfamiliar with what, like a very, very young child would not be sure how to handle their body, you know, like a toddler learning to walk. This, This monster is very young. He's only a few days old. And so he's still learning 
the ropes as well. Frankenstein lets in some light from the skylight and the monster turns to look at it, heading over to stand beneath it and sort of raising his arms towards it before Frankenstein shuts the light out again uh, and the monster sits back down. His hands are sort of, the Frankenstein's monster's hands as he sits back down are sort of in this like, why are you denying, why father, why have you denied me looking at the light uh, motion? And all seems calm uh, until Fritz runs in, clearly not reading the room, looking for the monster, (laughs) (laughs) torch in hand. And then Fritz spooks himself because he sees the monster that he was looking for. And the monster gets spooked (laughs) because (laughs) Fritz has a torch and is also screaming. (laughs) And he starts freaking out. It's basically like throwing a tantrum and they're forced to tie up the monster and like lock him in the cellar. Fritz really, man. <laughs> and then Fritz harasses the monster, like yes. giddily harasses the monster. Like when when I like not to say too harsh, but okay, spoilers. Fritz about to die. <laughs> when he's killed by the monster, I was just like, I mean, you kind of earned it. You're mm-hmm. wave. If someone waved fire in my face yeah. for a few minutes, I'm gonna defend myself. Yeah, like I understand entirely why the monster freaked out. He's only been raised in the darkness, and you just presented him with fire. Like, okay, <laughs> I'd be stressed too. And then in the cellar, we see Fritz is like whipping the monster to get him to just stay back, and I'm like, just let him. Take five to collect himself. Why are you tormenting this I, poor guy? I do also feel the need to talk about the physicality of the actor playing the mm-hmm. monster because he does such an amazing job of giving this like childlike yet definitely a monster just movement to this creation. And it's so amazing. I thought it was one of the best like monster physicalities I've ever seen. It's one of the elements of this movie that has not aged at all. I think the guy who plays Frankenstein murders it. Yeah. Who plays Frankenstein's monster? (laughs) I actually don't know. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It was Boris Karloff was the monster actor uh, in this movie. That is the most necessary and accurate astute name I've ever seen because that man looks like a Boris Karloff. (laughs) Yes, he's uh... (laughs) a... He wasn't actually their original pick for the role. I forget the name of the actor who was originally supposed to play it, but I and, and this was sort of his like big Hollywood role for the first time, and he was a pretty late bloomer for Hollywood, not getting into it until his like thirties or forties. But he he does bring so much physicality to this role that really sells the the monster itself. Because if it weren't for the the way that he he holds his form, um, the way that he moves, it all feels right for the character. And you could see someone trying to ham it up too much, really oversell this, but he does just, I think, the right amount of monstrous movement to really uh, make this character feel real, despite, you know, being like 6'4 and having a perfectly flat head. He's rocking a flat top and he's rocking it pretty well. <laughs> he <laughs> like, is. He looks pretty good on him. <laughs> yeah, he really makes it work. The bolt in the neck, it's, I'm on board. He's got, he's got a spot. <laughs> A style. I'm just mm-hmm. going to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a statement. It's a look. <laughs> um, but there's also uh, when it comes to. So I have this theory and this thing that I've put forward and no one's really agreed with me on. Everyone says Night of the Living Dead made the first zombie. Mm-hmm. I feel like with the changes they made from the monster and the novel to the monster, in the movie, he essentially does become the first 
zombie. Like, yes, he's not, like, out to eat people, but he is behaving in basically the same way that a lot of zombie actors would behave for decades and decades and decades to come after zombies became a mainstream thing. Interesting. That's an interesting take on it. I think... I don't know if I would classify him as a zombie, uh, but I think you have I wouldn't a... <laughs> either, but I think he, he like, established the physicality I think yeah. a lot of them go for. Like, an undead... If you're going to walk like an undead person, you walk like Frankenstein. Yeah, it's it's that shuffling. It's sort of like the stunted foot motion, the forward-leaning torso, that sort of physicality. I, I think you're on something with the, the motion part of that. I... <laughs> Frankenstein's the first zombie movie, damn it. You can't change my mind. <laughs> Then we won't try to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> speaking of the movie Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein and the professor hear Fritz's screams echo through the one hall of this tower. Uh, and as they rush down to the monster cell, they find... <laughs> they find. Sorry, it just made me think, like, it's basically the set from Friends, it but is, gothic. It like, is. it really feels like that. <laughs> the way that they handle space between sets in this movie feels exactly like a sitcom. <laughs> Yes, it the really outside does. world doesn't exist. The only place that matters is wherever the actors currently are or will soon be. Like, there's no. In the same way that in film noir, they exit an office and immediately arrive at the crime scene. Like, they exit this tower and immediately arrive at the villa or the village or wherever it is they need to be. There's no need to jump around. <laughs> Frankenstein's the first sitcom. You can't change my mind, damn it. <laughs> Ooh, we got the title of this episode Frankenstein Hot Takes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, entering the monster's cell they find Fritz hanging because I guess Frankenstein hung him uh, or Frankenstein's monster hung him Frankenstein tries to calm his monster but it, it, he goes on the attack instead uh, locking the monster in the cellar Frankenstein and the professor decide that they gotta do it they gotta kill the monster he's just too inherently criminal because of his smooth brain uh, so they gotta put him down like he was any savage animal <laughs> Sorry, I just want to quickly note the reveal of Fitz's body I found genuinely creepy. Like a mm. hanging corpse just in the background. Like if you look, you see it kind of in the distance and you're like, oh my God. I, it didn't, I it, it was so dramatic. I didn't question how Frankenstein got the yeah. tools to hang him and what he's hanging from because <laughs> it was a really striking visual. But then like five minutes later, I was like, how do you know to tie a knot? Like, how'd he do that? <laughs> he may not know what fire is, but man, if he didn't get his not tying merit badge. <laughs> Frankenstein grabs a syringe of some serum that's going to knock the monster out. And the professor takes it. And with Frankenstein as bait, the two men give the monster his shot. It works for now, although not before the monster tries to grab Henry. Uh, but as the forces of the syringe take effect, he does, in fact, pass out. As this sort of drama plays out, <laughs> Victor shows up again. <laughs> Uh, cause he's near enough to the tower to just appear at will. Uh, he says that Elizabeth and the Baron are on their way to the tower and the men go about hiding the body of the monster, not being able to deal with him at this exact second because company is coming and that would be rude. I love that logic cause it really is basically that. And they don't even <laughs> like do a quick throat slash or something no. to guarantee their work. They just, they just let him nap. Um, and I also, uh, something I thought was interesting when they have like the scuffle with the monster the entire time I was just thinking, yes, this is a classic Hollywood scuffle. It's not yes. a fight. They just vaguely grab at each other and fall over. And it's just, yep, that yep. was action. Then. Yep. It's a single shot. It's a wide shot. So you can see the whole scene. There's not really like intense fight choreography here. We're just grab them, fall in slow motion. We see the whole thing in the wide shot. And then we cut to the close up just so we can see 
the emotion on the monster's face, and then he passes out. That's it. It's all you need to do. It's simple. <laughs> it gets the information across. Uh, the Baron and Elizabeth arrive, and Victor lets them in, uh, saying that Henry can't be disturbed just now. When the professor appears and talks to the Baron, who seems they are like, both of us want Victor or want Henry to go home with you, so you should do that. Uh, and then the Baron goes to walk up the stairs to get, to get Henry. And I love this because he grumbles the entire time in the background of the shot as the other actors are exchanging like knowing looks in character. The Baron is in the background is being like, there's too many stairs in this building. He doesn't even have a doesn't even have a banister here. Like, what is he expecting to walk up all of these? <laughs> it's so funny. And again, I don't think it's necessarily supposed to be funny. <laughs> See, I took that as meant to be funny. I don't know why, but there was something about the actor's <laughs> delivery. I was like, it's the juxtaposition of him being like, this doesn't meet OSHA standards with like the <laughs> fact that we know there's a, you know, undead man walking around. Yeah, it's the, it's sort of dramatic comedy. Um, <laughs> but I just, I love that. I love that he keeps going the entire, it's a very long shot where no one else is talking and you just hear him slowly getting farther and farther away, grumbling about stairs the entire, entire time. And that is... It- a beautiful use of not to make a not to make like an overly modern reference but it felt like a line of like meta dialogue from scream like you know how like scream became the first horror movie to have like meta commentary Mm -hmm. on horror it felt like he was going like this set looks ridiculous no one would live like this like it does it was a very like he wasn't looking at the camera but it was a very look directly at the audience and start monologuing type of moment exactly uh elizabeth and the baron find henry who immediately like collapses because he's got the vapors or something and he starts moaning about how it's all his fault uh and in order to sort of rouse him from his stupor they feed him some brandy 1931 (laughs) 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 and his dad tells him that he's gonna get taken care of and taken home professor says that he'll stay and clean up all of the experiment stuff see the monster and we kind of jump forward in time later the professor is preparing to dissect the monster who is still alive His method of dealing with the monster, questionable. He's sedated because of whatever was in the syringe. And the professor sort of is noting in his logbook, like, the sedative is lasting shorter and shorter times. Like, it's, this isn't good. Um, Ready to begin the dissection. Why didn't he kill the monster before starting the dissection? I was unclear on his thought process on that one. I, I agree with that. I also want to note this man has gorgeous handwriting. I know that's <laughs> so not important, but nice. his handwriting is flawless. Beautiful. It's like the opening of like a fairy tale storybook. Yeah, that's what the I was thinking of. Like, <laughs> the most beautiful, like once upon a time ever has been transferred onto this professor's notes. It's Except he's writing gorgeous. like, I'm going to stab this guy <laughs> and we'll see if it reacts. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. Um, And the way that he begins the dissection is by laying on the monster's chest and listening for a heartbeat. And we get a shot uh, from behind the professor where the monster's hand slowly starts raising up his back until he starts to choke him. And he rises up from the table. Um, R.I.P. to the professor. You lasted half the movie. (laughs) And then we fade out of the choke. I love that he's being strangled. (laughs) We don't I didn't know for sure he was dead for a solid minute because we just see this like awkward holding that doesn't even look like choking. And then it crossfades in the middle of the action to just unrelated. (laughs) Yeah, there's no like explicit deaths shown in this movie people die but they typically begin dying and then we cut away from the scene or we move away from them like we don't see fritz die we hear him scream and scream and then he's already dead 
mm-hmm. uh, the professor we see getting choked, but we don't actually see the moment he dies. Um, similar with the young girl later on. And then there's Frankenstein, who somehow manages to survive the movie, but has a. we'll talk about it when we get to it, because he is either the world's sturdiest man or, <laughs> <laughs> or he is not long for this world. Well, this did begin the horror movie uh, franchise like trope of having just tons of unnecessary sequels. Like this was prototypical yes. for like all of that. Yeah, I mean, immediately after this, we get The Bride of Frankenstein and then sort of more and more iterations on it from there. But that, uh, <laughs> if you're looking out for your Bride of Frankenstein costumes, you're going to have to wait for the next movie because unfortunately she's not popping up in here. <laughs> uh, sort of stumbling down the windmill, the monster makes his way out into the world. Meanwhile, at a luxurious outdoor pavilion, Henry and Elizabeth are lounging about and talking about how heavenly it is to be together. Henry seems to be fully into his um, new life. He's like, I forget about my old career, my research. (laughs) That doesn't matter anymore. I've completely turned it around. The same man. Not on my watch. (laughs) The same man who a few scenes ago was going, I am literally God. Fear me. (laughs) I have made life. This is the greatest thing I've ever done. Now he's like, yeah, that was was like Wednesday. It's Thursday now. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Yeah, now I'm all about getting married to my beautiful fiancé, baby. At their wedding, Henry gets to wear a very old orange blossom, and also so does Victor, and he gets a crown of flowers put on Elizabeth's head. I wasn't sure if they're supposed to be real flowers or not, because their father describes them as being um, several generations old, and as far as I'm aware, flowers don't live that long, but <laughs> sure, we can roll with it. <laughs> <laughs> The guests all toast to a son of the House of Frankenstein, which makes Henry look very concerned in a little cutaway close-up for a moment, because in a way, there already is a son of the House of Frankenstein out there, but he's a little too monstrous to be an heir to their estate, baby. Dun-dun themes! (laughs) (laughs) The Baron also takes a moment, because they're toasting with some, like, old wine, very fancy old wine, uh, to in an aside to one of the servants, he's like, give the servants champagne because the old, the fancy old wine is wasted on them, which is like a little bit rude of him. <laughs> they're right. They're two feet away from you. <laughs> they're standing right there. Dun dun themes. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also, we watch the maids do a little toast to the, the house of Frankenstein and there are four of them in a line and three of the four of them take a nice little sip but the fourth one fully chugs her champagne. <laughs> that actress was just really tired that day. She was like, this is like take seven and I want to go home. <laughs> a whole mood. The sound of laughter draws everyone to the window where the villagers are flooding in for a party. The Baron, of course, providing, I guess, unlimited beer and thus becoming beloved by the masses of the town who cheer for him and his family. The whole town is out and about partying, but all... All is not well, because in the woods, the monster is stumbling around. We go to a cabin where Maria and her unnamed peasant dad are hanging out. Uh, Also a very cute cat. Her dad is like, Maria, my my young daughter, this child, I'm off to the woods to check my traps for hunting and things, and we'll go into town. Just stay here and and play with the kitty. Great. I'm I'm off. Exit stage left. Maria (laughs) takes her, her cat and goes and sits by the lake. 
Uh, and as soon as her dad wanders off, <laughs> the monster wanders in. It's the most adorable little girl. So the scene is so hard to watch. <laughs> She's so cute and you know what's coming and it's like, oh no. Yeah, it's very, um, you know, there's a lot of themes in Frankenstein that wrestle with like, can you learn humanity? And what makes one human? What are some of those commonalities? What are points of kindness? You know, in, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, we have the anecdote about the monster and the blind man that he he visited with. Here we have the monster and the little girl who at first, it seems like they're having a very wholesome and kind interaction. Maria asks him if he'd like to play with her and she gives him some flowers and she begins a game where she shows him that you can throw the flowers into the lake and they will float. And the monster seems to be having a wonderful time with this. He's very enamored of the flowers, but he runs out of them to throw in. And in lieu of other flowers, he opts to throw Maria in the lake. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny. But it's but a it's, little it's funny. It's a little funny. <laughs> it's, it's a little funny. Because the way the scene plays out is up and until the moment the monster picks up Maria, it's very soft. He's smiling for the first time all movie. She's like giving him flowers. There's a little cat in the corner. It's very cute. Uh, and he And still smiling, the monster picks her up. And just chucks her in the <laughs> And there's just sort of splashing in the background, and the monster is immediately distraught and runs out, like runs out of the scene. And Maria, we presume, drowns. We kind of cut away from the scene. Like I mentioned, we don't really see anyone actively die in this movie, so we kind of cut away uh, mm. for the moment <laughs> as the monster runs off. R.I.P. to Maria. Meanwhile, back at the wedding party. It's a wedding party, baby. Uh, Elizabeth busts in in a very dramatic long gown covered in lots of lace. She asks Henry to speak with her privately. And they do uh, one of those tracking shots I really like where they're moving through the house to several rooms and they start in one and without cutting, the camera just follows them as they pass from room to room to room. Uh, it's very theatrical. I know we've thrown that word around a lot. It's the way that a, a house would be presented on stage where the audience is sort of looking at it as though we've cut into it like a cake. Uh, but I like when they use that in films, especially old movies. And uh, rather than cutting from room to room, we just track. Uh, it's it's very fluid and I think it's a fun use of the space. Uh, but it is, again, very theatrical. <laughs> I It also, I don't know, I just... I, I, I think this story is told better that way. I think there's a reason mm -hmm. all the more truly cinem like cinematic adaptations of Frankenstein haven't hit as well. It's a very classic story. And I think that mm -hmm. blending of adaptation in a way really just kind of worked for the better. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you know, there is a certain magic to this era of filmmaking that works for mm -hmm. these kind of... Frankenstein is not necessarily a simple story, but this version of it is fairly straightforward. And I think yeah. that the style that this era of filmmaking had really works for this story. It's why adaptations yeah. of it, like you said, just don't hit the same. Yeah, it, it would take something really... It's like filmmaking's language has gotten too complex to tell mm -hmm. such a blunt story and it still feel mm -hmm. like it fits right. Um, because this, while I think there are a lot of interesting deep themes to talk about with Frankenstein, it is a blunt story. Yes, there's uh, in terms, if you don't look at it thematically, you just look at it in terms of the plot beats. It is a man creating a monster and then that monster killing many people and wreaking havoc on this man's life. Um, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. That's, that's the... 
back of the cover plot summary, right? And there's so much more going on there underneath it. Not necessarily always in this movie, but definitely in the original novel. Um, yeah, but I do like think they, they I, I, I do think after reading both versions of the novel, this movie kind of dumbed it down more than I originally thought. Yeah, it, it still kept a lot of the theming, but it is just a lot more, especially with how they just made Frankenstein. This doesn't have a brain, really. He just kind of moves mm-hmm. around and causes chaos. That's not the way it is in the book. Um, and I thought it was an, a, a, a dis, not a disservice. It works for this what it is, but it makes them at heart two very different stories, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, the Frankenstein's monster in the book is, like you mentioned, more of a character, whereas here he feels like more of an a, an object or an instrument of the plot yeah. uh, more so than a character in their own right. There's not a lot going on that the audience is invested in seeing this monster change in any direction. We yeah. kind of understand like, this is a monster. He will do monster things. Whereas the book, there's a lot more nuance involved there. Exactly. Uh, Elizabeth is telling Henry, like, I'm so glad that you're safe. Totally normal thing to say on my wedding day. Um, <laughs> and he's like, are you, are you good? Like, you seem like you're not good. Uh, and she's like, I'm just worried because the professor is late. Like, what if something happened to him? And she looks just beyond the camera to say that she feels as though something terrible is going to happen. (laughs) Once again, a character is looking almost at the audience to tell us that that we've reached the third act of the movie and therefore shit's about to get real. (laughs) (laughs) Henry promises to always be with her. Uh, but she doesn't seem super sure about that when Victor, our old friend who interrupts every conversation, knocks at the door and busts in. And he's like, the professor's been murdered in the tower, which prompts Henry to run out of the room uh, and lock Elizabeth into the room after moments ago promising they would, you know, be together forever. Uh, <laughs> 1930s. <laughs> Why did he lock her in? <laughs> I just feel like for me, it was like a, it was a visible representation of removal of agency from a character. You will stay in this room until the monster arrives here and you will serve your purpose, damn it. (laughs) And you won't have to wait long for the monster to arrive because a loud growl will alert all of the men that there's a monster in the house. Uh, Henry very confidently yells, he's upstairs, and they all rush upstairs. Which he's not. (laughs) Which he's not. And then they keep searching from room to room, and eventually Henry then yells, he's in the cellar, and they start running downstairs again. Suddenly it turned into Scooby-Doo. Yeah, it's fully, it's fully uh, the scene, you know, they're running through the hallway in and out of multiple doors. Um, No one's coming from the same entrance twice. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Elizabeth is pacing nervously around the room that she's been locked into as the monster, who is notably not in the house, (laughs) enters through her bedroom window. Uh, She's actually a level one wizard who can cast illusion. uh, And so he's casting (laughs) an audio illusion throughout the house, obviously. Yes, he expertised in stealth and he just rolled really high on his check. You know, he's... (laughs) She does this thing where she keeps walking just out of the reach of his arms until finally she turns around and notices the monster, which prompts her to scream. Elizabeth's scream then alerts the man squad that something is amiss, Um, but because the door is locked, no one except for Henry can get into her room, so there's a whole hullabaloo outside. If only he hadn't locked her in this room before. (laughs) Minutes ago. They're finally able to get into the room as the monster makes its escape. 
Elizabeth fainting and muttering about not letting it get in here. As the monster is making his escape, uh, the unnamed peasant man and father of Maria enters the town, carrying the uh, dead young girl in his arms as all of the partygoers stop partying and join him in sort of a solemn mob towards the Burgermeister's place. It's actually like a incredibly striking shot. Him carrying that yes. little girl, like it's a very impactful like visual. It's it's very impactful. I want to give a lot of credit to the background actors in the scene because they do an excellent job of showing us vis- like the immediate reaction of everyone seeing this scene in the movie itself. They go from revel- revelry to shock and horror at diff- slightly different pacing. It, there was some really good direction be- behind these background actors here. Uh, but also just the image of this father carrying his limp, soaking wet child through the streets of the town with just like the most tragic expression on his face. It The perfect pacing. It just, it's, it's like you said, it's really impactful. Um, yeah. I have a less impactful question. What exactly is the role of a burgermeister? <laughs> no idea. I assume he provides the town burgers. Um, yes. And I, I will take no <laughs> other thing. You see, the, the visual is so impactful, though. It didn't even make me think about how in the hell did he know what happened to his daughter? Was he watching it all yeah. occur and then just didn't interfere? Like, how would he have known there was anything aside from she just accidentally drowned? <laughs> yeah, it, they. so he sort of leads this mob to the Burgermeister and he's like, my daughter's been murdered. She was drowned. The Burgermeister promises to see justice done. And when he asks who did it, everyone sort of just like, yells loudly and I couldn't tell if they were yelling at something specific or not but our angry mob is forming uh and I wasn't sure if in this scene the villagers actually knew who killed the daughter or if when Frankenstein joins them later on he said here's who we need to look for but even so how would he know I guess because the well, monster showed up why did he not just think oh my god my daughter drowned like what is the yeah. possible <laughs> explanation aside like if I if I was a in the position where I had to leave my daughter daughter by a giant <laughs> body of water and then I came back and she's in the water and I knew she had a habit of sitting next to the water and throwing things into the water I'm not <laughs> gonna go hey point. Ted Bundy's here <laughs> I'm gonna go I'm a I shitty mean... dad <laughs> sorry <laughs> I guess maybe because the cat didn't go in the water. So maybe he's like, well, she wouldn't have jumped into the lake without her precious kitty cat. So surely something horrible has gone wrong here. I would have said this is the greatest movie ever if he just walked up with the daughter and went to the burgermeister and went, the cat killed my daughter. (laughs) It was the kitty all along. The whole rest of the movie plays out the same way. But instead of chasing the monster, they're just chasing that like one kitten. I may have missed something. Maybe they do justify it, but I have no idea how he knew. No, I, I'm with you there. I, I sort of bought into it because at this point in the movie, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to have to hear them debate what's going on. Everyone seems to be pretty on board with there being a monster running around, but they don't really give an explanation for why this father specifically would know, like, well, what, what was up with this? Well, and I've watched enough forensics files to know if the male father <laughs> figure shows up with a dead child, the father killed the kid or the wife. Like, it's always that. I've watched forensics yeah. files. It's the dad, okay? Spoiler alert to every crime ever on that show. It's the dad or husband. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the unwritten laws of crime, you know? I guess it didn't apply in ambiguously Germany in 19-whatever this was. 18 Fair. this was? Although I, I did watch one episode place. of Forensics Files where they were like, the wife killed him. And I was like, oh, the twist me that she didn't. And at the end, they were like, no, she killed him. And I was like, oh, my God, feminism? 
Like, I don't... (laughs) (laughs) The twist was that there was no twist. Exactly. It was like the first in 40 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. As Elizabeth has been fainting off screen, Henry decides that in order to get married, he must first destroy his monster. Uh, And so he leaves Elizabeth in Victor's care. And he's very specific. He's like, Victor, I think you need to understand. You are responsible for Elizabeth now. But nothing comes of this. He just takes a moment to make sure that we, the audience, are aware that Victor's in charge now. I thought, I swear to God. Can I I curse? Are we allowed to do that here? Yeah, curse away. I swear I thought I was going to pull him aside and be like, don't fuck my wife. Like, it really felt like (laughs) that to me. I was like, why are you, this is weird. Is he not coming with you? Like, so strange. Are you trying to say, like, he should marry Elizabeth if you don't make it back? What's going on? Because this is, you lost me a while ago, buddy. And these two have no established relationship that we understand at this point. All we know is that Victor wants to bone his wife. That is all. Are they friends? Yeah, that's the only connection is Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is off fainting somewhere. So right now, I don't know why you trust him so much, but it's fine. This is the last time we'll see Victor in this movie anyway. So let him have his moment. (laughs) Spoiler alert. They didn't really wrap up the characters with a pretty bow on top. No, not even a little bit. Uh, the villagers in Frankenstein now have their classic angry mob, pitchforks and torches. Actually, I don't think there are technically any pitchforks in the scene, but there's a lot of torches and the spirit of pitchforks is there uh, as they're about to set off to search for the monster. Um, the Burgermeister wants to take the monster alive if possible, but above all else, do they just want to get him? I wasn't quite sure why they were so keen on keeping the monster alive at this point. Like, I'm not trying to advocate for... Um, just killing anyone who commits a crime, but I feel like if you have only referred to this character as the monster, and so far the the monster has killed multiple people, maybe don't add the alive preferable caveat to the beginning of your angry mob hunt. So you are pro, uh, you are pro outcast <laughs> murder is what you're telling me here. Uh, I'm pro just leave it up to the individual. I think. <laughs> okay. Okay. I don't. I don't think the burgermeister needs to set the tone because then we we see some mobster, uh, not mobster, mob members get uh get murked by the monster in the process of the hunt. So I'm like, my dude, they shouldn't be going it alone. The search continues for some time through mountains and forests and things in the mountains, which look suspiciously like the Rocky Mountain set where we saw that guy hanging in the beginning of the movie. Frankenstein's group is weaving through the rocks when they spot the silhouette of the monster. The monster sort of like hides from them in the rocks as they storm past uh, and somehow in all of the hullabaloo Frankenstein gets separated from the group. The monster watches Frankenstein approach alone for a moment before making himself known and Frankenstein tries to use his torch and the fire on it to spook the monster but the monster seems to be pretty much immune to the concept of torches at this point. It's he's, called, gotten you know, he's, he's gotten fear. too much. It's like a jump scare at the beginning of a movie. It's like well now I'm done. Like I got the jump yeah. scare. He's just gotten then used to it now. desensitized to it. And he, he experienced the sun. So now he's like, look at that. That's way bigger. <laughs> That's some weak light. You want good light? Sun. That's where it's at. <laughs> uh, Frankenstein cries for help to alert the others to come find him as the monster begins to absolutely wail on Frankenstein. <laughs> and this is where I was never quite... So this begins a about 10 minute run where I'm never exactly sure if Frankenstein is alive or not. So the monster wails on Frankenstein a bunch. Frankenstein seems to pass out and the monster takes his creators into his arms Uh, and heads for a wooden windmill as the mob gives chase. Sort of shutting himself inside of it and heading for the top, the torch-wielding mob gathers outside this wooden windmill. 
with um, the monster and Frankenstein's maybe dead, maybe not body inside. Uh, then Frankenstein starts moving, so I guess he's not dead. <laughs> and he sees his creation growling at the mob. He starts trying to like crawl away. The monster spots him and they tussle a bit on the top of the windmill. And then the monster throws Frankenstein off the windmill. He hits the like blades of the windmill and he spins a bit before eventually landing on the ground very limply. I have no idea if he is supposed to have died in this moment or not. And I don't think the villagers do either because they're like, <laughs> just take him home. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's we... very strange that is a vic it it's funny they were the scene was really effective in setting like its situation until that and then mm -hmm. that happened and my reaction was just that was awkward like that was very <laughs> yeah. it's just weirdly blocked far too much time spent throwing the body devil onto the windmill and um not enough time spent dwelling on the trapped monster yeah just throw Frankenstein off and then cut to a shot of him on the ground. We don't need to see him hit the windmill blade and spin around for a bit before landing. It was just too... Uh, it was the same kind of, like, blocking you would get in, like, an action comedy nowadays, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. That's the, the Will Ferrell hits something awkward on the way down, falling from the roof to save him. Yes. Gag. Exactly. Um, and also, no idea if Frankenstein is alive or not, but the villagers, they take him home. Uh, the mob then sets about burning the windmill, um, setting the wooden structure on fire with the monster trapped at the top, screaming as flames begin to engulf, engulf the structure. Trapped under wood and flames, everything crumbling around him, he meets his end. And it's, it's I think, a very powerful scene. It's not true to the novel, but no. for the story they've been telling in the movie, having the monster kind of eventually taken over by the light, quote-unquote, uh, the fire and trapped in a way that leaves it just ambiguous enough that I guess he could return in a future movie is and get a bride and get a bride and everything it this was before the era when they were like seeding sequels intentionally in end credit scenes but I do kind of appreciate this ending is very similar in structure to a lot of um, mid-2000s movies that ended up not getting sequels. The one that comes to mind is uh, Dark Shadows, that Johnny Depp vampire movie, <laughs> where they had an end credit scene where they showed the vampire coming back to life. This felt like at any second they were going to show me the monster's hand sticking out from the rubble of the windmill, but uh, we don't actually see that here. Although that would have been a good shot. I, w I think that would have been a good shot. I would have liked it. <laughs> I like camp. I, Give yeah. me camp. <laughs> It would have been very Terminator 2, and I, I do have the, I, I appreciate that. We, we love a good <laughs> monster moment. Back at home, all the maids are gathering the fancy wine, knocking on the door to Henry's room where the Baron enters. As he opens the door, we can see Henry lying in the bed, and it's again still unclear if he is alive or dead. No idea if Henry survives this movie, not even a little bit of a clue. But the Baron does take the opportunity to drink the wine the maids offered instead of giving it to Henry, and the movie ends as the Baron toasts to uh, the son of the house of Frankenstein and scene. And Victor sits with blue balls off screen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Victor is just about. <laughs> it's, 
it's a very fumbled ending to a book that I thought had a wonderful ending. I really like the ending of the yeah. book, and I think the ending of the movie is just a product of the era of Hollywood where you have to have the, oh, cheers to the the good, because like it misses the point of the moral of the story of the book, which is like, you know, mm. maybe don't celebrate Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe don't celebrate the man who created the monster that terrorized your town. Let's just, uh... Yeah, no, it, it definitely has the feel of, like, oh, we need to have a happy ending because this is, like, a classic Hollywood movie, and we can't... I, personally, if I was ending the movie, I'd be like, just end it on the monster dying in the windmill. Like, end it on that collapsed windmill, the scene. It's the story of Frankenstein's monster, not really the story of Frankenstein in this case. Yeah. But we have to bring it back to the Frankenstein family. We have to have our little toast at the end. Our again, I don't. I hesitate to call it a happy ending because it's really unclear what happens to all of the characters who do survive. Um, I, and even yeah, if they I, survive. It, it's interesting. I'm like, well, is this town about to just murder the whole Frankenstein family? Because like, if <laughs> word gets out what Frankenstein did and how he's responsible for all of this, I don't understand why they're like just like, hey, we're cool, right? No. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, all the beer in the world cannot possibly buy. <laughs> The love of a town that you created a monster to terrorize it just doesn't feel like there's possibly an exchange rate there. I just see the, like, the father of the little girl being like, look, I miss my daughter, but I got a whole cask. So <laughs> they gave me cask. an entire cake. I can throw a whole party. <laughs> I could throw it in the river in my daughter's honor afterward. <laughs> me and the cat are going to go and get really, really turned. <laughs> well, I mean, for those of you who haven't. For those who haven't read the book, the book ends with a much darker tone mm-hmm. where it's implied Frankenstein's about to go unalive himself. I'm not, sorry, not Frankenstein. The monster is about to go unalive himself because he's actually, like, intelligent enough to communicate that to the reader. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's a whole other, I don't know. It's just such a product of the 1930s. It, it really reeks yeah. of, like, pre-World War One. Nothing's bad ever Hollywood. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a real shame because up, like, there's a lot of really genuinely fun story elements up till now, but this just tonally doesn't match what we've seen up to this point. It, it kind of ends the movie on a bit of an awkward note. Yeah, we, we just watched a great adaptation end with a giant wet fart. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just to, we're, we're sort of coming up on time here, so just to wrap it up, do you have any sort of closing thoughts on the movie Frankenstein? Uh, is there any situation that you might recommend our listeners watch it in if you'd recommend they watch it at all? I'm interested to oh, hear I, your thoughts. <laughs> I think it's a must watch for anyone who's into sci-fi or horror. It's the most influential story from the novel perspective for either of those genres that's still relevant today, in my opinion. I mean, Mary Shelley arguably invented science fiction with this story about a guy who creates an artificial intelligence. Um, she is, it's funny, everyone credits Asimov, but if you look at, like, Asimov, he's always talking about Mary Shelley. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think it's just, it also, up into that ending, a wonderful way to look at doing adaptation with the limitations of the time, um, mm-hmm. and how they overcame a lot. And if you're a fan of set design or creature design, we even get into the makeup for Frankenstein, but it's so minimal, oh, yet it's so effective, even in black and white. Yeah, well, it's actually, it's this is the movie that kind of popularized the idea of like the green Frankenstein's monster because obviously it is in black and white, but the specific um, tone of body paint they used puts the monster in such stark contrast to the really dark backgrounds around him 
uh, that later iterations use this as a blueprint to be like, oh, well, how do we make the monster contrast with its backgrounds now that we're in color? We put them all in this like awkward palish green. This is a great movie if you are yourself a bit of a movie buff, regardless of what genre you're into, because it is sort of the pinnacle of this period of monster movie. Um, it's between maybe like this and Nosferatu for most iconic classic Hollywood monster uh, yeah. movies. No question. Um, and I would say this is a more enjoyable watch than Nosferatu, mm -hmm. uh, mainly because Nosferatu <laughs> is just that much older. I think it's over 100 years old now. Um, it's <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's been around for a minute. <laughs> uh, Frankenstein had some of the advantages of still aging. like a, It's still aged, but it still has some of the advantages of the time of Hollywood is in, of being a little bit more up to par. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, yeah, this King Kong Nosferatu and... I, no, I think that's... Oh, and of course, like, Dracula. Like, those are probably just the pinnacle you-must-watch monster horror movies that are... Mm -hmm. it's, it's also... Okay, so I've been watching... It's totally off-tangent. I'm sorry. This is my brain works. <laughs> I apologize to you and the reader. Uh, this was so old that none of the modern horror tropes are in it. So I was, like, going in thinking, like, okay, who's the final girl? Because, like, every modern movie has, like... Every modern horror movie has the final girl that you follow who's, like, trying to survive, and they do. And I kept looking mm -hmm. at the, the fiancé character... And then I was like, wait a minute, no, this isn't how this works. It's from the novel. It's not the dumb, you know, Halloween type uh, right. tropes I've been going for. So it's actually a little subversive accidentally <laughs> um, because you keep expecting more grotesque group murders and like a faster pace and jump scares. None of that's there. None of it. No. I would even be hard pressed to categorize this as a horror movie. One, because it existed. It was created before horror was really a genre. But two, because mm -hmm. it's not necessarily that it's it's scary. Um, it's more thrilling, if anything. Uh, it, it plays into, I think, different tropes than the modern conception of the horror movie does. Like you mentioned, there's no final girl. That's possibly the most iconic horror trope that we have, and you can't apply it to this film. Uh, so while it's definitely a, a predecessor of the genre, and it definitely inspired some of the later monster flicks, it's just early enough that it, it kind of is its own category of scary movie. Quote, unquote, yeah. scary movie. <laughs> And it's 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 amazing that we said all that, and yet this movie at the time was so shocking they had to have someone yes. come out before the movie and go, "You might want to go home. This is this is yeah. gonna be harsh." It's like when people <laughs> say like The Exorcist is the scariest movie ever, and you watch it now and like a drawer closes, <laughs> and you're like, "Oh my god!" Ooh, the horror. It's very Twilight Zone. I kept expecting Rod Sterling to pop up and be like, "Man, that shit was fucked. I'm Rod Sterling. Let's move on." <laughs> Like, you know that's, how, that's they the in, how they <laughs> do how they do in Twilight do. Zone. <laughs> Is that not well, how even, every episode ends? <laughs> no, it, I mean, this kind of has a blueprint to it of Twilight Zone. Yeah. You're right on the money with that, with the introduction and the narration and the the feel of the whole story. I mean, yeah, this, this feels extremely Twilight Zone. It's genre defining while not necessarily fitting into a modern description of a genre. Uh, if, yeah. any, if it's in any genre, it's in the monster genre. But what even is that? That's a... That is a question for <laughs> much more advanced film scholars than I. <laughs> that That is a genre that has been uh, co-opted by the furry community, and I mm. uh, refuse to acknowledge it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a delightful jaunt through cinema past. Uh, if our if our listeners want to find more from you, where could they where could they find you? And potentially, is there a way that you could help them round out their bookshelves? <laughs> 
Uh, I do reviews every week or so on my channel. I'm just Daniel Green on the YouTubes. If you like me enough to follow on Twitter, I'm Daniel B. Green. You can see me talking about, like, trollic butts there. I get into this. I talk about the things <laughs> of fantasy people are afraid to talk about. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, I also support the Trevor Project whenever I can, so if anyone wants to donate to them in my honor, I think that's, or just in the honor of this episode, in the honor of Frankenstein, uh, that would be a wonderful <laughs> thing to do. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. It's a lot of fun to talk about uh, one of my personal favorite movies that I know is not perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was, this was a great time. Um, I've, there's a thunderstorm brewing. I've got to go, you know, work on a little side project of mine, but we'll be back uh, in two weeks with another episode. And until then, uh, happy watching. Happy watching. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on November 22nd with La La Land, but if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for the podcast before then, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed hearing from Daniel Green and you want more from him, there are links to his YouTube channel, book, and socials in the show notes below. Be sure to check those out. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform.